Our scripture passage this morning is Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord God, great is your faithfulness. And it's because of your faithfulness, that's why we're here today. We're here because of your faithfulness to your word, to your promises. God, you are faithful and good to deliver on your promises supremely through pursuing us in the midst of our sin and bringing us to yourself through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. God, you are faithful. God, I pray that this week as we embark on VBS, God, I pray that our children of Southside will see your faithfulness, that they will see your faithfulness in Jesus Christ, and that they will in turn seek you with all their heart. God, this week, as the whites are on vacation, I pray that you bless Blake and Alicia and the kiddos. God, I pray that you would use this time to restore, to rest, bless their travels. That would be a great time of Sabbath, of rest. Be with us this morning. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray that we will hear your word We'll live in light of your word more faithfully because of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It is so good to see you all this morning. It is so good to be able to have this opportunity when Blake is on vacation and resting to come before you and bring the word of the Lord. We're going to be in Jeremiah 29. And I chose this passage in Jeremiah because it contains this week's VBS verse. That's 29.13. And my hope is that this sermon sets the tone and lays the groundwork for the gospel ministry that's going to be taking place this week through VBS. Jeremiah 29.13, our VBS verse says this, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This echoes our prayer for every single one of our kids here at Southside that they will seek the Lord with all their heart. We value children. We value children's ministry here. I don't know if you've recognized, we've kind of got the staple of having a lot of kids around here. We're kind of known as the, as, as the church with a bunch of kiddos. We love that. 
And because of that, and because we see that this is vital gospel ministry, we want to take this opportunity to recognize any person who is a volunteer or teacher in children's ministry here at Southside. If you're involved in any capacity of teaching our kids, would you please stand up so we can recognize you and your gospel label, labors here at Southside. Thank you. C.S. Lewis said, children are not a distraction from more important work. They are the most important work. Now onto today's text. Let me just address the elephant in the room. One of the most popular verses in America is in this passage. Chances are most of us at one time or another had this verse on a coffee mug or hanging up on a plaque in our house somewhere. That's verse 11. It's a very popular verse and even unbelievers have this verse on their Twitter or Instagram bio. Why? Because we all want to prosper. But when we take this verse out of context and slap it onto a coffee mug, we not only do a disservice to the verse, but to ourselves as well. The meaning of this passage is so much richer than what earthly health and wealth and prosperity could ever give. Next week, Pastor Brant Small, a pastor of Sun City Church in El Paso, who we partnered with uh, during our spring North America church planning offering, he'll be preaching from Psalm 23. And we could have just had a little, called this a mini series on popular passages put in their proper place. It's basically how it turned out. But in Jeremiah 29, in order to truly grasp the context and the gravity of this passage, we must do what all good sermons do, and that is to dive into the context. So go to the very beginning of this chapter. It's on page 614 if you're using the Bible in the chair in front of you. Go to verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. Tragedy has struck the land of Judah. God's people are taken from God's place. So Jeremiah writes them a letter to remind them that though they are unfaithful, God is still faithful to his promises. Though they are unfaithful, God is still faithful to his promises. Today, as we break down verses 10 through 14, we'll see that God's promises are true. God's promises are good. That they include repentance and they ultimately point to Christ. Let's keep reading by picking up in verse 4. Still laying the groundwork of context here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. 
Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your son and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. It's a pretty odd command, wouldn't you say? to dig into Babylon, to stay there in exile. Don't try to leave, but that's exactly what Jeremiah is telling them. He's saying, dig into Babylon. Don't try to leave. Seek the welfare of Babylon around you. And now look at verses eight and nine. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So we also get a glimpse into another reason why he's writing this letter. He's telling them to dig in while they're in exile, stay there. He's also addressing false prophets. And specifically one false prophet in particular named Hananiah. You can see Jeremiah and Hananiah's interactions together in chapter 28. We're not going to go there right now. But Hananiah was telling the exiles, basically, don't worry. This exile is only going to last a couple of years. After a couple of years, we'll rebel. We'll break the yoke of Babylon and we'll go back. Don't worry. But Hananiah later proves that he's wrong. Because after Jeremiah calls him out, Hananiah dies. And his promises never come true. That's what happens when you prophesy false prosperity. So Jeremiah writes this letter and says, don't listen to these false prophets. Buckle down in exile. Seek to thrive there. Jeremiah is correcting false teaching. How? By reminding them of God's true promise. And he promised it was going to be 70 years, as we see in verse 10. Here we see God's true promise. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. You see, God has already marked out how long this exile will last. It's not going to last two years. It's going to last 70 years. And any time that the number seven is used, like the number 70 here, it means a perfect number, a complete number. We know looking backward that after 70 years of them being taken from their land into exile, being taken from their land into Babylon, we know after 70 years, the Medo-Persian empire comes in and overthrows Babylon. If you recall, that's when Daniel the prophet is taken into the party of Belshazzar because there's this hand that is writing on the wall and Daniel is brought in to interpret that writing on the wall. You remember that? That same night, Medo-Persia comes in and overthrows Babylon and that marked the end of the 70 years of exile. And so we know looking back how faithful God is to his promises. 
So making it 70 years is a way of showing that this judgment, that this discipline, that bringing them out of their land into exile, that this judgment, this discipline is from the Lord. This judgment is painful. It is from the Lord. But while they are being disciplined, he promises after the 70 years of exile has been completed, he says, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. What place is God talking about? This place is the promised land. Now, why is the promised land so important? Throughout the Bible, we see God's plan for his people, that God's people would dwell under God's authority in God's land. We see that throughout the entire Bible. That's how it starts. That's how it will end. We see it in Genesis first. God creates the Garden of Eden. He creates Adam and Eve. And we have God's people dwelling in God's land under God's rule. But they rebel under God's authority and are exiled from God's land. And next we see Abram. What does God promise Abram? This moon worshiper. He says, I'll make you into a great nation And he's going to give him the land of the Canaanites. Abram is God's people who will dwell in God's land under God's rule, him and his children. Then we have the story of Joseph. God sovereignly uses Joseph to eventually save God's people from the famine. So God's people were in God's land. Joseph was in exile. Joseph was in Egypt. But God uses Joseph to save and deliver his people by bringing them to the land of plenty. God sovereignly uses Joseph to save his people. So God's people come from God's land into a foreign land. And for 400 years, God's people are not in God's land. But then God raises up a deliverer, Moses. And leads God's people out of the land of exile back into God's land. Y'all remember what happens on the way to the land? They're going through the Red Sea. They're being led by a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud. And they come to a place called Mount Sinai. Now what happens there? God gives God's rule. He shows them God's law. He gives the law on their way to God's land. God's promise is coming to fruition. But then what happens when they get to the land? They get to God's land and they send out 12 spies. And two spies come back with a good report saying, God is faithful, let's trust him, let's go and take this land. But 10 of the spies say, no, we can't, there's giants there. It's too scary. God's not faithful. And the people listen to the 10 spies and God punishes them by wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So God's people rebel against God's rule and so they cannot dwell in God's land. You'll see in this pattern. Then after 40 years, they come back to God's land and Moses gives the law again. He gives God's authority again right outside the land. That's where we get the book of Deuteronomy, Deutero. Nomos, second law giving. 
And when he gives the law a second time, they enter into God's land and Joshua leads the way. All this to say, to bring us to Deuteronomy 4, verses 25 through 20. I'm going to read it for you and listen to this. As they're entering God's land, God gives this promise. He says, when you father children and children's children have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the nations, among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. In short, he promises, if you rebel against my rule, I'm kicking you out of my land. So what do you think happens? We see in the book of Judges, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. They are unfaithful. But God is still faithful and God gives them a righteous king named David. And they're faithful for a while, but only to fall back into sin again, which eventually leads to the people having to divide a kingdom, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And eventually the Assyrians come in. Because the people were unfaithful, the Assyrians come in and take the northern kingdom away from God's land. And now Babylon is taking away the southern kingdom, Judah, from God's land. And that's where we find ourselves at now in Jeremiah. He's writing to this unfaithful people who are brought away from their land into exile. But here in Jeremiah, God is faithful to his promises and he promises that he will bring them back to the land. So Jeremiah shows that the people that God is faithful to his promises, he's faithful to his promises in both ways, by disciplining them like he said he was going to do, but also promises to bring them back to the land. But it's more than that. Just from that first verse, we see that God is true to his promises. We see God's true promises. But we also see that his promises are good. Go to verse 11. God backs up his true promises with assurance. In verse 11, he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. At this point... Judah must be freaking out. We have completely blown it. We have been unfaithful and we're actually taken out of this land for 70 years. There's no way that God is as good as he said he was when we have been so bad. We've truly messed up at this point beyond restoration. That since we were unfaithful, then God will be unfaithful. But God, Jeremiah displays God's fatherly love toward them by assuring them that God is still meticulously in control. And that he's not only meticulously in control, it is for their good. 
Just flip back a couple pages to Jeremiah 27, verse 6 and 7. This is uh, amazing. God's sovereignty. Jeremiah 27, verse 6 and 7. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Nebuchadnezzar and taking, coming in, taking over Judah was not random, no. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar as a servant and uses him to discipline Judah. And then in, here in verse 11, we see that this discipline is for their good. God says these plans are for your welfare and your good. Our call to worship, remember our call to worship earlier? God's ways are higher. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. His ways are bigger and better than ours. In the midst of discipline, God is faithful to his promises, but also God is faithful to his good promises. His promises are good. Even in the midst of our most painful circumstances and discipline, God is meticulously working them for our good, my good, and your good. Just think back to Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Christian, trust this. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says this, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God is not out to get you and to destroy you. God is working for his glory and your ultimate good. Jeremiah is writing this letter to show God's promises are true and that they are good. In these next few verses in 12 and 13, it's really unique. He also promises the people's repentance. Look at verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is a beautiful passage that is both, it, it kind of does two things for us. It models what godly repentance looks like and it's also a promise that repentance will happen, okay? So it's modeling of what our repentance should look like. But it's also a promise that God's people will repent, this shows us how we should repent. We should seek God with our whole heart. We shouldn't vacillate when we seek God. We should not have conditions when seeking God. God, I'll seek you if only you do X, Y, and Z. No. We should actively, wholeheartedly 
with every fiber of our being, seek after God, knowing that when we do, we will find him. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever, this is for you as well. If you seek him and seek him alone, you will find him. But if you seek after God saying, I'll follow him as long as he delivers in these ways, you will never find him. God calls for wholehearted repentance. Jesus echoes these words in Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So this is a model for us today. And it is a model for the exiles to repent wholeheartedly. To seek the Lord with everything they have. And it's a promise that God will accept this heartfelt repentance. Even after all of their unfaithfulness, God delights in a repentant heart. And God will accept that wholehearted repentance. It gives us hope that when we sin and fail, and when we fail God, that when we seek him, we will find him. But this is also, it's a model for us of how we should repent, but it's also somewhat prophetic. It's a promise. I read for you earlier Deuteronomy 4. I stopped short. I want to bring this next point up, starting in verses uh, 29. So God is, he's promising what's going to happen. If you mess up, if you go follow other gods, if you go follow other gods, I will kick you out of the land. But... Let's pick up in verse 29. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. God is just as passionate and is just as promising, is just as true to his promise of judgment, of their disobedience as he is the promise of repentance. I will discipline you but you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah clues us in on what's really going on within this repentance in Jeremiah 24. Go ahead and turn back a few pages to Jeremiah 24, verses six and seven. Jeremiah 24, verses six and seven. I will set my eyes on them for good. He's talking about his people. And I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. 
heart. Now this language in Jeremiah 24 and in 29, this, the language that's being used here is laced with new covenant terminology. And it seems to be laying the foundation for the new covenant that's promised two chapters later in Jeremiah 31, where God promises that he will fix the true problem. He will write the law on their hearts. He promises that he will write the law on their hearts in God's land. So God's people will dwell in God's land and truly follow his law and truly follow his authority. The promise of this repentance doesn't negate our responsibility to repent. Do we just sit back and not repent? No. Doing so would show that we're not children of God. Children of God, repent. This is a call to repent with your whole heart. And this is what Jeremiah is telling the exiles to do and what we should do today. But as we look at history, when Jeremiah has this call for repentance and he has this promise of repentance, do we see Judah do this? Do we see Judah, a revival break out and Judah repent? Not necessarily right away, but what we do see, I believe the answer is in the book of Daniel. So if you flip over just three books to the book of Daniel, go to Daniel chapter 9. So remember when I said that after the 70 years, the Medo-Persian Empire comes in and takes over Babylon. I told you about the story of the writing on the wall and Daniel is interpreting what that actually means. That's what's happening here in Daniel 9. That's, that, this, Daniel 9 takes place right after that the Medo-Persians take over. Look at Daniel 9 verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans is the Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to who? Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. All right, so what's happening? Daniel is in Babylon. He's in exile. And he's reading the book of Jeremiah. And presumably even the same passage that we're reading today. And he realizes that they're actually coming to the end of the exile. They're coming to the end of the 70 years. So what does he do? What, is, what does Daniel do in response to this? Look at verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who, who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules." So what does Daniel do? He repents. He's reading these passages in Jeremiah about coming back with their whole heart and he leads the way and he repents with his whole heart. He is seeking God with his whole heart. And he, feels, he fulfills exactly what was promised in Jeremiah 29, 12 and 13. 
He is seeking God truly. This, what, what Daniel is displaying for us is a model of true heartfelt repentance. All right, so I want to show you something else that's really cool, but I'm going to get a little history nerdy on you, okay? So hang with me, okay? I promise you, this is really rich. So in this passage, who's the king that he mentions? It's Darius, okay? Darius the Mede comes in and he takes over Babylon, okay? So he was, Darius is part of the Median Empire, okay? Y'all got that? He's a Mede. He's part of the Median Empire, not Medea as in the movies, but the, the empire, Median empire. Hello. Um, so he's part of the Median, Median empire, okay? But then Cyrus, the king of Persia, comes in and he comes to power and he basically takes over the Medes. So Cyrus is with Persia and he comes in and takes over Darius and the Medes. But Cyrus is a kind of a nice guy he allows Darius to basically have the same position. And now they, they now have the Medo-Persian Empire, okay? So here it says Darius in the first year of Darius the king. So by transition, that automatically means this is Cyrus's first year to reign as king over this area. So tracking with me? So Darius comes to power, Cyrus comes to power at the same time basically because Cyrus took over Darius. Why is this important? Because Daniel says that he prayed this in the first year of King Darius, which is also the first, king, first year of King Cyrus. Why is this important? Look on the screen, Ezra 1, 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so by association, Darius the Mede, the word of the Lord by the mouth of... Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." God answers Daniel's prayer by using Cyrus II, king of Persia, the most powerful person in the world, to let the exiles go from Babylon after 70 years of exile, to go and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem in order that Jeremiah's prophecy might be fulfilled. This is... God truly working for their good. Did y'all catch those verses at the end? Let him be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts. God is faithful to his promises. And through Daniel's repentance, 
through his heartfelt repentance, God stirs up Cyrus's heart and actually does truly, in fact, restore his people to their place. God is faithful. But also, we're not done with Daniel. Oh, no, no, no. Look at Daniel, verse 24. God also uh, answered Daniel's repentance by sending the angel Gabriel to him. In Daniel 9.24, he says this, Gabriel says this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring what? To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. All right, what does all that mean? Hopefully you picked up on the language there at the end, atonement, everlasting righteousness, okay? We don't have time to get in all the theories of the timeline here, but suffice it to say, remember seven, that's an important number, that's the number of completion, number of perfection. 70 weeks, when, when Gabriel says in verse 24, 70 weeks, he's really saying 70 sevens because there's seven days in a week, okay? So 70 times seven is what he's talking about. So the common consensus by scholars is that this is saying after 70 sevens or 70 times seven, which is 490 years, so about 500 years, the sin of the people will be finished and their sin will be atoned for, which will bring about what? What does he say at the end? Everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. What happens about 500 years later after Gabriel's declaration? In a little town of Bethlehem, which is the city of David, a little baby was born from the line of David who is the savior of the world. What does that have to do with today's passages? Because this is the fulfillment. This is true prosperity. It's not just bringing them back to the land. It's what is truly promised beyond the exile. Beyond the exile is 490 years. Christ comes and it's better than just having land. It's true righteousness. It's eternal righteousness. It's atonement for iniquity. He answers Daniel's heartfelt repentance with Gabriel promising an answer for the people's sin. It's more than just the land. It's perfect communion with God. So what does it teach us about God's promises? They're better than we even ever could have dreamed because they are found in Christ Jesus. That is true prosperity. But yet we are so consumed. We're so easy to be satisfied with scraps of the world by slapping this one of these verses on a coffee mug and saying, yes, give me money and health and wealth. When we do that, we miss that the true promises of God is truly found in Christ Jesus. He is the true prosperity. Believe in that today. Look at verse 14. Let's go back to Jeremiah 29. 
and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations, all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So we see that God, God's promises are true. We see that God's promises are good. We see that God even promises our repentance. And here, God promises true restoration. He closes where he started at verse 10. He says, I will, I will fill you my promises and bring you back to this place. It's real similar language here in verse 14. I will bring you back to this place. So historically, due to the changes of power, it's all the empires taking over each other, the children of Israel were scattered all over the known world. How is he going to truly restore them? How is he going to bring back the scattered people from all across the nations? How will he bring all these people back to himself so that they will truly follow him? The answer of how he is going to do this is found in Jeremiah 23. Turn back to Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 8. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 8. God first, he declares destruction in all the people who scatter his people. And he says, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. God is going to deal with the false shepherds, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then... I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. So he promises, you false shepherds who have scattered my people, I'm gonna deal with you. Because I'm the true shepherd, but I'm also going to bring all these people back to myself. And then he gets to this passage right here. How is he going to do this? Let's keep reading. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord. Yahweh is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But instead, instead of saying that about Egypt, they'll say, the Lord who lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries where he had driven them. Then they shall dwell in their own land. All these people will be brought from exile. How? By a righteous branch from the line of David. And he will give them true righteousness. God is faithful to his promises. And his promises are of restoration. And true restoration is only in Jesus Christ. 
the righteous branch from the line of David will be established and he will rule over his people in God's land in righteousness. Christ came and he fulfilled this. But there's still something lacking. We're looking forward to a better day. We're still looking toward perfect communion with him, right? We're still looking to be God's people who dwell perfectly in God's land under God's rule. Well, we get to get a glimpse of this, of what really, of what this restoration will look like in Revelation 7. This exile of bringing, all the people are out in exile and bringing to restoration. Revelation 7 says this. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from where? Every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. This is a glimpse, this is a picture of the ultimate fulfillment of this restoration. God is faithful. God is faithful to his promises. This is how it all began in the garden, right? This is how it was meant to be. God's people dwelling in God's land under God's rule. And this picture, this perfect picture is what we look forward to in glory. Through the prophet Jeremiah, he shows that he is faithful to his promises. Brothers and sisters, God's promises are true. God's promises are good. And he also promises our repentance and he promises our ultimate restoration. A few applications as we close. Number one, true prosperity is believing in the righteous branch. True prosperity is believing in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. They find their yes in Jesus. Don't use scripture just to try to get some health, wealth, and prosperity when Jesus is the better treasure. He is the ultimate fulfillment. So today, unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever today, trust in this righteous branch. Trust in Christ for ultimate restoration. Seek him and you will find him. Number two, Judah was going through great trial. But even through this, God promises hope in the midst of the trial. So believe God's promise that he is truly working for your ultimate good, which is what? What is the ultimate good? Strengthening your faith in Christ. Strengthening your faith, faith in the righteous branch. And lastly, Christian brothers and sisters, let's look forward to that day, that day of glory, when God's perfect people will dwell in God's perfect place under God's perfect rule. Let's seek to spread this kingdom everywhere we go, ushering in the kingdom of heaven. Press on. 
I'll close with this, Revelation 21, one through four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, where's the true dwelling place? The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. God is faithful to his promises. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. For it starts with your word, God. It starts with your promises. From there, God, when we hear your promises, let us trust your true promises and let us trust that they are for our good. God, help us to trust, to know that through whatever circumstance, whatever discipline we're going through, that you are working for our good. And that God, that you promise that if we seek you, we will find you. Help us, Lord, to repent with our whole hearts. And Lord, let us look forward to that day of final restoration. Press on towards that, God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.